1: You guys look good, you look good. Hey, um, if, if you are a regular around here and you, you call celebration your home, I'm, I'm only talking to people that you call celebration your home. Um, if you could help us out, you can see that this 10 o'clock service is full. And if you're able to, you don't have to, you can stay at 10 o'clock service, but, um, but a church only grows to the size uh, and it only reaches to the size of its most full service. And that means if we want to be able to reach more people with the gospel that are that are flooding this valley, uh, we need more seats in this service. And uh, that's one way that you can you can help participate is uh, by just shifting to either our 8:30 service or our 11:30 service. But if it just doesn't work for you, that's fine. We're glad you're here anyway. We're in the middle of a series um, a collection of messages on. Um, the Bible for Dummies, and w- last week we talked about Bible translations. This is not the, if you, if you came for a preacher, uh, today's not going to be the preacher day. I was told afterwards it felt like a lecture. Uh, yes, it'll be more like a lecture today. If you want me to preach, come back in a couple of weeks. Um, in, in February, we're going we're gonna to do a whole collection of messages on this idea that it's worth fighting for. And, uh, and we're going to talk about some things that are worth fighting for in February. So, uh, But I, I, somebody passed me this translation. I, I, I don't, I've never really done. I remember I had a friend from Honolulu. Uh, it, my, my best friend in Bible school is from Honolulu. And he, he read out of this. And I haven't studied it to know if it's a translation or a paraphrase. But either way, it's fun. And this is the Pigeon Bible. Uh, <laughs> so, um, like, when it's uh, Galatia, it's a Galatians. The title of Galatians is for the for the Galatia people. (laughs) It's so funny. I love it. Uh, It's Hawaiian. So Luke chapter twenty verse one says, one time Jesus go inside the temple yard and teach the people the good stuff from God. (laughs) Come on, that's good. That's fun. Thank you for, for that treat, that's, that's, uh, that's awesome. Hey, so we've done some memory verses the last couple of weeks, and uh, I hope you're enjoying it. I just, I, there's something special about putting the Word of God inside of you, and uh, so the first week we, we did this, uh, right here, there we go, say it with me, your, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path, Psalm 119, 105, very good, and next, uh, the, the following week, so last week we did this. We said, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. Psalm 130, verse 5. And this may be hard for you to read, the screen's quite small. And, and that's because we, we have moved. We used to have a really big screen, and, uh, and you could see the words really easy. Um, this is actually a tarp that we're just shining it on. and uh, it's Because we know how to do things ghetto, come on. But the reason, the reason it's really small is because we are, we've shifted our auditorium so that this is just temporary. And in six months, we'll be in our new space, and you'll be able to read the words just fine. So those last two Bible verses, we, we, taught, them, we taught you to, to memorize them by just removing a word at a time. It's just a simple technique to learn the Word of God. And today, I want to teach you a different way. To put the word of God inside of you. It's not by removing verses at a time. It's by taking a portion of the verse and meditating on it. So, what we're going to do is I'm going to read a verse and then we're going to meditate on the first portion of the verse and then we're going to meditate on the second portion of the verse and then we're going to quote it. You ready? So, when I say meditate, um, what I mean is you're going to, you just kind of close your eyes and kind of in a prayerful spirit, you're going to ponder, you're going to think about what that verse means, okay? So, here we go, um, it says, read it with me, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, Matthew 24, 35. Let's read it again, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, Matthew 24, 35. Okay, so we're going to take the first half of that verse, and we're going to read it and then meditate. And I'm going to meditate out loud so you can kind of hear what I'm doing, Okay. So, heaven and earth will pass away. Lord, everything around me will eventually be gone. All the physical things that I put my hope in, all the luxuries of my life will eventually be gone. Heaven and earth, so all the things I can see and all the things I don't see, so all my fears will one day be gone. All of my insecurities will be one day gone. Lord, everything that I have purchased to somehow make my life more comfortable, one day it will be gone. All the things I see and all the things I don't see will one day be gone. Next verse. Next portion. But my words will never pass away. Lord, the only thing that lasts is your words. The word that proceeds from the very mouth of God never ends, never ceases, never stops. Your words never return to you void. Your words always land and plant seed in the soil that they find themselves in. Even to this day, thousands of years after your word was spoken through the mouth of Jesus, Lord, those words still have power and impact in my life. Every word of God will always have power and authority. Now let's quote it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. Great job, come on, good job. People learn in different ways, so I just wanted to demonstrate a different way of doing it. So, last week we talked about the um, different translations of Scripture. It was a lot of fun. This week, it's going to be a little nerdy. Are you guys ready for Bible Nerd? Um, So, here we go. Okay, so, (laughs) um, we're going to talk about this, sort of this big idea of, okay, so we talk about translations, but can I actually trust what those say anyway? Is the Bible itself a reliable document just as a as a piece of literature or as a document is it even reliable and i just want to start off by saying yes i think there is great reason to trust the word of god when we say faith we don't when we say faith in the word of god or faith in god we do not mean blind faith that just leaps with no persuasion i believe there is enough evidence to trust the word of god that you can firmly place with with your mind, place your faith in the word of God. And there's been a big doctrinal shift in the church, not just from outside. For for a long time, the church has faced pressure from outside. This is the most uh, attacked book in the world. And and yet, even in the church today, there is a doctrinal shift that, that pushes away from this idea that the Bible... Is reliable, And can I just tell you that the motive behind that is simply to undermine the, the authority of the Word of God so that we can do and believe and behave however we wish to do, be, and behave. There, there is an ulterior motive there. There is not scholarship there. So when we talk about the Old Testament of the, or the New Testament of the Bible... And how it is a bunch of books gathered together. You'll often hear people say things like, uh, "But the but the Bible was um, like like it's, it's missing certain books of the Bible, or it got edited and changed a whole bunch of times, and now it's I mean there's there's not just individuals that say that the Bible has been edited and changed over the years. There's entire religious systems that say the Bible has been edited and changed and is untrustworthy. It's simply not. True. So when we talk about the New Testament, we talk about the canon of the New Testament. When we say canon, we mean the collection of documents, letters, and books that come together to make the New Testament. So this is, this is called the the canon of the New Testament. Anytime you you pull all of the documents that go together together, that's called a, a canon. Like uh, Shakespeare has a canon. It is all the the major. Uh, plays written by Shakespeare. It's called the Shakespeare canon, okay? So in order for a book to be included in the New Testament canon, there were three criteria. This is important to remember. The first criteria to be included in the New Testament is the book must be, or the letter, must be apostolic in origin. What that means is it was written by one of the apostles, an eyewitness of Jesus, or one of their contemporaries. They were not written, the the New Testament books were not written by people a generation after Jesus. They were written by people that knew him, walked with him, talked with him. The only one that did not walk with him and talk with him is the Apostle Paul. And the Bible tells us that Paul was taken into the wilderness for three years to be taught by God himself. And then he went to the apostles in Jerusalem who proved his doctrine and his teachings. This is what we mean. So uh, you might see in Barnes Noble, like the, the missing Gospels. If those missing Gospels were not written by someone who knew Jesus or a contemporary of someone who knew Jesus, they're not considered apostolic, and therefore they do not go into the canon of Scripture. The next thing to be in the canon of Scripture is it must be Catholic. And now somebody right now is like, oh, we left that church. What are we doing here? We're like, oh, we're in the wrong church. No, 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 no. Catholic is a church, but it's also a word. And the word Catholic means universal. So when, when they named the church the Catholic Church, they meant it's the universal church. That's what they meant. When we say that a document must be Catholic, or it must be apostolic and Catholic, what we mean is it had to, in during the, the first century, it had to be Universally understood as being an apostolic doctrine. Like it had to have been universally accepted by all the churches that it was a legitimate do- a document from the early church writers. So when when you see when you see something like, for instance, like you, you go to Barnes Noble and you see the Gnostic Gospels, the missing Gnostic Gospels that they're trying to keep out of the Bible. No, no, no. The Gnostic teaching was not universal in the Christian world. In fact, in your Bible, several of the New Testament books were specifically written to combat the teaching of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a cult. So it wasn't universal. So when you go to Barnes Noble and they say that's missing from the Bible, it was never universally understood as a Christian document. The third requirement in this litmus test is that it, it must be orthodox in its teaching. So in order for a book to be included in the New Testament, it had to be written by someone that, that was an apostle or one of their contemporaries. They knew Jesus. It had to be uh, universally accepted by the church, and it also had to be orthodox, meaning right teaching, correct teaching. It had to have the kind of teaching that Christianity affirms. This is one of the reasons why Gnosticism, Gnostic books at Barnes & Noble are not included in the canon of Scripture. Because they're not Christian teachings. I'm preaching hard right now. So, these are the litmus tests. Now, I'm going to give you the timeline so you can kind of see what's going on. From 45... AD, so Jesus dies around 32, 30, 32 in that range. About 45 AD to 100, people begin writing letters and books of the New Testament. They begin writing them. So it it took about 50 years for the New Testament books to be written. Then from 100 to 200, those same books begin circulating through the expanding church. They start Being read publicly to the church. These are not just private letters. They're letters that the church universally, catholically, Catholic church didn't exist yet. Universally, they all received them as legitimate works of the Bible. Then from about 200 to 300, those books began to be examined, and here's why. Because about 200 people started slipping in new letters and new documents that did not go with the earlier writings, and they were unfamiliar to people. Everybody was like, This, this it smells wrong. It looks wrong. It's not from someone we like, like this thing from Thomas. This was not in the original letters. And so what begins to happen from about 200 to 300 is the church begins recognizing that there, is, there are texts tr- that are being circulated that we need to remove because they are not apostolic. They're not written by contemporaries of Jesus or the apostles. They're not universally recognized by the church. And they're also strange. They're not orthodox. They're strange in their teaching. So what happens is between 300 and 400, the church then says, okay, we, we already know the, the scriptures that we, we recognize come from the apostles. We're going to bring that into what we call a canon of scripture. This is not, um, there was no like secret meetings. <laughs> like, oh, there's these secret meetings and they're like trying to like get books out. No, 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 no. It was universally understood. In the same way, that it's been about you know, four or 500 years since Shakespeare was here, and we universally recognize what Shakespeare's writings look like. We, we, it has been distributed enough that we universally know that when we're talking about Hamlet, we're talking about a work from Shakespeare. But, but if I was to say Pride and Prejudice, you would say that's not actually Shakespeare. Why? Because we know this common knowledge, it's universal common knowledge. This is how the canon was put together. It was not some, like, meeting, like a political, not like a, like a, like Congress coming up with an, with an agreement. It was common. It was very common knowledge. So, there's another thing that's called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha were Hebrew writings that were written between about 400 B.C. until Jesus shows up. They were Hebrew writings that included history, poetry, wisdom literature, prophetic, like um, prophetic literature. But the deal with the Apocrypha is that neither Jews nor Christians claim them to be inspired from God. So again, you'll go to Barnes Noble and they'll say, this needs to be there. The, the Jewish community never claimed that they were inspired, and neither did the early. Christian community. I want to show you just, this is, again, nerdy, but I think it's so powerful to show you how accurate the Bible that you read is to the original documents, because that matters. We believe the original documents were inspired of God, and it's important that what we're reading is what those documents say. So here we go. This is um, Plato. So the writings of Plato happened about four 27 to 347 B.C. But the earliest copies we have of Plato are from 900 A.D. We're talking 1,400 years, 1,300 years before Plato's copies are available. That's a long time. And there's seven copies of Plato's writings and the accuracy of them doesn't really even get on the chart because there's a lot of discrepancy already between seven copies Caesar Augustus or no Caesar Augustus Caesar's writings from 100 BC to about 44 BC and the earliest copy of Caesar's writings are 900 AD so i'm saying originally written 100 to 44 not copied for another nine hundred and fifty years, and there are about ten copies and again there 's already enough discrepancy between those ten copies that to put it on a scale of accuracy it, it doesn 't really even get on the scale. This is why you, when you read those ancient writings there 's a lot of different versions <clears throat> tacitus so tacitus um, he was one of the one of the writers of, of he he wrote Germania which was one of the one of the philosophical documents that led to our country so tacitus in, in 100 AD is when he wrote his books 100 AD and the earliest copies of tacitus are from 1100 AD 1000 years before his writings are copied and there are about 20 early copies And again, a lot of variation within those 20 copies. Aristotle, anybody heard this name before? (laughs) 384 to 322 BC is when he's doing his writings. And the earliest copies we have of Aristotle are from 1100 AD, 1400 years later before we begin seeing copies of him. And there's about 49 copies. And of those 49 copies, there's enough variation that they really don't even hit the chart for accuracy. 1,400 years before it's copied. Okay, next one. Homer's Iliad. Anybody ever heard of Homer's Iliad? Any of you actually read it? Liars. I'm kidding. Okay. am Okay. Audible doesn't count. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Audible totally counts. All right. Homer's Iliad, one of the most famous epics in the history of humans, was written 900 B.C., and the earliest copy of Homer's Iliad is from 400 B.C., 500 years before it gets copied, And there are 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, and because there's that many copies and they have such congruency, we can say Homer's Iliad was written with about a 95% accuracy based on what we're looking at in the copies. That's pretty impressive. Your New Testament of the Bible, it was written between 45 or 50 A.D. and 100 A.D. The earliest copies of your New Testament begin at 130 A.D., We're not saying 900 years. We're not saying 1400 years, 30 years. We're not talking about like generations apart. We're talking about in one person's lifespan. It already be within one person's career, it already begins to be copied. And we have 5,600 copies of the early New Testament, and their accuracy among each other is about 99.5% accuracy. That's amazing. Differences being things like spelling, like 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 different um, different ways where letter, letter letters are arranged, like like little things. But ninety nine point five percent. This is like academic. This is not like religious pushing things forward. Academically, ninety nine point five percent accuracy. So when I read the writings of the Apostle Paul, am I reading what he said? Ninety nine point five percent. Yes. That's. Pretty good. <laughs> Pretty accurate. And so when people say it's changed over the years, we say, no, we actually can go back to writings from 130, 30 years after the original document, and see that they still match what the originals say and they still match what we have written. There's not been this big shift and change along through the years. That's a lie. <clears throat> um Okay, so what about the Old Testament? You're talking about the Old Testament. How do we know the Old Testament is accurate? Okay, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> you ready for some more Bible nerd stuff. Here we go. <clears throat> There's a Jewish historian named Josephus Flavius. And Josephus, he lived about the same time as Jesus. In fact, he writes about Jesus. One of the interesting things is he's not a Christian, but when he describes Jesus, he says this, whether he can be called a man or not, I do not know. Pretty interesting for a non believer to say that about Jesus. But Josephus claims that the canon of the Old Testament had been solidified by the time of the Persian king Artaxerxes. That's about four, it's in the, the 400s BC. This is the time of, remember the movie 300? That's Artaxerxes. So during that time, the canon of the Old Testament had already been established. The deal is this, that modern scholars, they based most of their writings or renderings or translations of the Old Testament on what's called the Septuagint. Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done 250 BC. And so for years, that's pretty much all we had. And then we discovered we had documents of the, or copies of the Old Testament in Hebrew that dated to the 10th century. Well, that's still not nearly as accurate when we're saying it was written in 1500, from 1500 to 400 BC. So 10th century, it's, it's like a couple thousand years off. Well, as scholars go on, we end up finding another, when I say we, I'm talking about the academic world sees a second copy of the early New Testament that dates to the 9th century. So still a 1,000 years off of where it should be. And then these two Bedouin boys that are in a land that's disputed between Jordan and Israel at the time. Israel ends up taking it over during the, the, the Seven Day War or whatever it's called. Um, and <clears throat> but during that time, it's, they're just west of the Dead Sea. It's these cliffs. It looks a lot like the Owyhee Mountains. A little steeper, but basically the Owyhees. And these kids are shepherds. They're shepherding goats, so they're goaters. And they're they're doing what boys do. They're throwing rocks, okay? And as they're throwing rocks into these caves, this is a picture I took. And I'm showing it to you because by showing you this picture, I make my trip to Israel tax deductible. Take that, Uncle Sam. Okay, so... These boys, these boys are throwing rocks into caves, and as they're throwing rocks into caves, trying to find a missing goat, they hear a, a clay pot shatter. This is actually the fourth cave that was discovered. It's not the one that the boys threw the rocks into, but they hear this clay pot sh- shatter, and this is what they found, something like this. This is in a museum in Jordan, and these are clay pots that have been uh, basically uh, just uh, c- completely airtight sealed, and they've been sitting there for, for a couple thousand years, for about 2,000 years, these clay pots had been hidden in caves. It's called the Qumran Caves. And it's a, it's a really cool place. You need to go to Israel and see it. We're going to plan a trip, and we're, we're just going to take a huge bus. Okay. They find these clay pots, and in them they find scrolls. They find scrolls that are on different kind of things. So go to the next one. There we go. This is a scroll that is, it's not really a scroll. It's, it's the Hebrew writings on a copper plate. So they're written on three different things. They're written on copper, they're written on leather, and they're written on papyrus. And the beautiful thing is, because all three of these things are made of carbon, not only can they date them based on the styling of the writing, right? Like you can look at English writing from the turn of the century, and you recognize that's an older style of English. You see cursive, you know that wasn't written by your children. (laughs) You can read it. You know your kid didn't write it, right? Um, So you can date things based on the way the 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 letters look, but you can also date it based on carbon dating. And when they carbon date these leather and papyrus and copper scrolls, they, they find that they go all the way back to 300 B.C., 300 B.C., and they were hidden in caves, preserved. What's amazing is there's over 900 of these scrolls, and 225 of them are Old Testament biblical scrolls, and there are copies. Not like one copy, but multiple copies because they didn't have a printing press. Multiple copies of every book in your Old Testament except for Esther. Like, like multiple copies. And here's the beautiful, like, here's here's the book. This is Isaiah. This is called the, the Great, I, no, 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 no. No, no, no the, the Isaiah one. Yeah, there we go. This is the great Isaiah scroll. It's this giant scroll of the book of Isaiah. And what's beautiful is we can look at that and say, we can now compare what they had at 300 BC to what we see in the New Testament today. And it has, again, like a 99.5% accuracy. The only difference is is things like spelling and stuff like that. You say, oh, that's a big difference. No, 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 no. Understand that language itself changes. So here's an example. Anybody have a King James Version of the Bible? Okay. That King James Version of the Bible was written in 1611. But the one you have is not a 1611 King James Bible. This is a 1611 King James Bible. And if you look at it, it's spelled much differently than yours. If you notice, when it says who at the very beginning, it's two Vs, almost as if the word is double V, double V, right? right? Like, uh, I remember in French, double V, right? It's, it's two Vs, okay? Uh, and then when it says, there's a lot of Fs. Does anybody notice there's too many Fs in this picture, right? Who is Blift? <laughs> Thumbs. Trifth kingdom, the book of (laughs) plums. The reason is because the English language used to spell things slightly different, and S's within the sentence looked different than S's at the end of the sentence. So if we were to compare them, we would say, oh, there's a little bit of discrepancy there, but not in content. Does that make sense? Your Bible is reliable. it is it is reliable. <clears throat> okay, um, your bible it, it it is just simply historically reliable. Uh, there's There's a reason why archaeologists around the world, non-believing archaeologists, archaeologists that believe things other than Christianity, like Muslim or 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 Jewish archaeologists, they all use the Bible as an archaeological document. The reason is because time and time and time again, the Bible talks about real people in real places and real events, and they are always discoverable. The Bible does not claim some sort of fanciful archaeology that never existed. Everything the Bible says, you can find. A great example of this is that in the New Testament, the Bible claims that a man named Pontius Pilate was the one who ordered the execution of Jesus. And for centuries, antagonists of Scripture have said there was no one in the Roman government named Pontius Pilate. This is a made-up myth. Well, we don't have to just look at Scripture. We can look at the writings of Josephus, who was not a Christian and was actually against the Christians. Josephus, in the first century, says this, Pilate, when he heard him accused by the leading men among us, talking about Jesus, condemned him to the cross. So Pilate is named by Josephus. And scholars would still say the Bible's wrong. There was no one named Josephus. Well, Tacitus the one who wrote Germania, and the one who wrote Annals, he also is talking about Christians, and he says this, the founder of this name, Christians, Christ, has been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator, I cannot say this word for some reason today, procurator Pontius Pilata. He claims that Jesus, the founder of the Christians, was executed by a man named Pilate. And yet scholars still say the Bible is inaccurate because it claims there's a man named Pilate who didn't exist until people start digging, people. And as they start digging, they dig in a place called Caesarea Maritima. Caesarea Maritima is beautiful. It's where Ben-Hur, remember the movie Ben-Hur and the Chariot Race? That's, that's, if you have not seen Ben-Hur, your parents need to up their parenting game a little bit. And the chariot race, there, right? The the chariot race, that was at Caesarea Maritima. There's a a big Colosseum where there was public speaking. In fact, where the Apostle Paul pleads his case to Agrippa. And Agrippa, King Agrippa says, You've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. That's at Caesarea Maritima. There are public bathroom stalls in Caesarea Maritima. In the middle of a hallway, you can sit six people wide on a toilet together. It is the weirdest thing (laughs) in the world. And at Caesarea Maritima, they found a stone, because it was the location where the kings of Israel, the, the Roman kings of Israel would stay, the prefects. And this is the stone they found. And it says on it, Pontius it says, Prefectus Pontius Pilata. Prefectus, meaning he's the king of Israel, Pontius Pilata. There's archaeological evidence that this man existed. And it's at that point that the scholars finally say, okay, maybe he did exist. <laughs> I think sometimes we raise the bar so high for the Bible and we ignore the fact that the rest of the world does not have to meet the same standard. For instance, Alexander the Great, you are taught him as a fact, but the truth is there is more evidence that Jesus Christ, now I believe Alexander the Great lived. I think it would be foolish not to, But there's more evidence to support that Jesus lived than Alexander the Great. In fact, Alexander the Great does not have a biography written for 300 years until 300 years after his death until there's the first biography of Alexander the Great written by somebody that never knew him. And Jesus has four written by people that all knew him. That's impressive. Your Bible is... Reliable. Another thing that's, that people have read in the Bible and said, well, this is just, it's, just, it's fake. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. It says this, that it was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. And he succeeded in everything he undertook. It, it says that, that Hezekiah blocked a spring and channeled it to the other side of the city of David. Well, here's the thing, people. The city of David is a giant rock. It's a stone. It wouldn't be like digging through dirt. It would be like mining through ore. It's a rock. And yet, so scholars said, this is all flawed. It's not true. It's not true. Until we go there and we find Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem that goes from the spring of Gihon to the west side of the city of David. And it comes out of the springs of Siloam, like, which was also another discovery that people said didn't exist. It's a lot of fun, when you go to Israel, it's a lot of fun, it's very dark and very claustrophobic. With cool water on your feet the whole time, it's amazing. Your Bible is reliable. Psalm 148 verse 5 says this, let them praise the name of the Lord, for at his command they were created and he established them forever. He issued a decree, and they will never pass away. What's it talking about? It's talking about the stars in the sky that people used to say would come and go, come and go. And the Bible says, no, it was God's command that they would come. For years, people believed that the earth was flat, and some of you may still. (laughs) But long before Christopher Columbus ever sailed the sea blue... The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, that he sits enthroned, talking about God, he sits enthroned on the circle of the earth. The word there is the word for sphere of the earth. So long before people discovered that the earth was round, the Bible claimed it was a sphere. It, In fact, for for years, people always believed the Bible was supported by Atlas, or it was supported by a turtle, or it was supported by columns. And Job, the oldest book of your Bible, says this, talking about God, that he spreads the northern skies over empty space, and he suspends the earth over nothing. Well, of course, we know it's suspended over nothing. Nothing. But three and a half thousand years ago, people did not know that. Three and a half thousand years ago, people thought there was a turtle. And yet the Bible said what was true. It is reliable. Talking about the stars of the sky, there was um, Hipparchus, uh, the great mathematician that helped us develop a lot of our, um, our geometry and that kind of stuff. One of the greatest mathematicians to ever exist And he made a catalog of all the stars. He cataloged them and named them. All 1,022 of them. (laughs) This was interesting because about 300 years later, Ptolemy proved him dead wrong when Ptolemy realized that he missed four. And so it was (laughs) 1,026. But the point is, We're talking about long ago, and yet at the exact same time, the Bible speaks to a prophet named Jeremiah, and he says this, I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars. Because today, we look through our Hubble telescope, and we can see 200 billion trillion That's a lot of zeros. And I think we all know that if it had a little more magnification, we would probably see more. And the Bible says there are countless. For years, there was this practice in medicine called bloodletting. Anybody ever heard of that? It's because up until like literally a 100 years ago, we believed that all infections and sickness in the body came from your bile, it came from your yellow bile, your black bile, from phlegm, and most importantly, the worst of them all, it came from your blood. And so the way to get people sick from infection, to get them healed from infection, was to remove the blood from their body. This is how the great General George Washington died not fighting a battle he died in a hospital room with his blood pouring out of his body willingly so that he would be infection free and yet your bible has said in leviticus chapter 17 that the life of a creature is in the blood It's it's always said that, that that the the infection isn't the blood, the life is the blood. As the band would come, I I, I just want to read this in Psalm 12, verse 6. It says this, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. The, The words of this book are like gold that has been refined, pure, and beautiful. And what's so amazing is we're talking about a book that was written in a dozen different countries, in three different languages, on three different continents, by over 40 different people, with one congruent message, overarching theme, The God of the universe is after you, and he's chasing you, and he loves you. Why is that important? It's important to recognize we're not talking about one book that one person was able to make sure everything lined up. We're talking about 1600 years, and it all comes together. That's a big deal, because you think about any other major religious text, It was written by one person, not 40 people. Remember I said this the other day? I said that when you have one person translate scripture, you get a cult. The Bible was written by dozens through the inspired power of God. The Quran, written by one man. The five books of Confucius, written by one man. The Sutras of Buddha, written by one man. The Bhagavad Gita of Hinduism, written by one man. The Book of Mormon, written by one man. Your Bible was written by 40 people through the inspiration of God, and it all comes together. Why? Because the Word of God is flawless, it is like silver purified in a crucible, like gold that's been refined seven times. And Jesus himself trusted the Bible. Matthew 5, verse 18, he says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is. Is accomplished Jesus believed in the Bible can I just say this I'm landing the plane if you believe what you like about the Bible but don't believe what you don't like the, about the Bible it's not the Bible you trust it is yourself you trust this is the fundamental Christian presupposition that the word of God is reliable and it is authoritative in our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16 says it like this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. We believe the scriptures are breathed from God. And this lands me on two words that probably clunky in our culture and I will need to define them a little bit they are the words inerrancy and infallibility and as soon as I say that there's people that kind of oh what do we mean by that well let me explain what we mean by that the inerrancy is the belief that every word in scripture was written according to God's will And the word infallibility means that the scriptures are 100% error-free in all matters in which they intend to speak to. And this is key, that we clarify that. All matters in which they intend to speak to. What I'm saying is, if you're making the Bible say something it's not trying to say, that's not what we're talking about. But anywhere that the scripture intends to speak in the areas of faith, theology, all of that, we believe it is 100% accurate. It is what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. It's what we believe. Let me give you a quick little litmus test qualifications for inerrancy. This is important. First, it applies only to the original manuscripts. These are translations. If you build your doctrine on a single word and a single translation, and it only works in that translation, your doctrine is wrong, and that's how cults start. We believe the original manuscripts were inspired of God inerrant. We believe that it respects the literary conventions of the writers. That means if someone's writing poetry, we should not think they're writing a textbook on math. Because you do that and you start making the Bible say things it doesn't mean to say. It allows for partial recording. What we're saying is just because one gospel says something and the other gospel says something slightly different does not mean that they're wrong. What it means is, This person had a a perspective that they're writing from inspired from God, and this person has a perspective that they're writing from inspired from God, and the two come together to form one whole. And lastly, when we say inerrancy, we mean it allows for experiential language. It, It allows for us to understand that people are experiencing the power and the presence of God. That's what we believe as Christians. There's a difference between being saved and being a Christian. Being saved means you've you've confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Being a Christian means you have made him Lord and he is transforming you by the renewing of your mind. We see this with a thief on the cross. He was saved in an instant with Jesus but he did not have a transformed mind. We believe the Bible is reliable and the authority for our lives. Voltaire, the, the, the famous thinker, he claimed that within 100 years, Christianity would be forgotten. And 100 years after Voltaire's death, the French Bible Society bought his house and turned it into a Bible publishing house. So my question for you as I, as I land this is this. Will you attack God's word or will you live by God's word? Will you deconstruct God's word or will you defend God's word? Will you follow the world or will you follow the word? That's my real question. So today I'm going to read this. This is a prayer that I'm going to read. I'm going to read it so you know you have full understanding of what it says before I ask you to pray it. You're more than welcome to opt out. Here's the prayer I'm going to end with. From this day forward, I will accept the Bible as your trustworthy word to me. You don't have to read it yet. And I will make it the final authority for my life even when I don't understand it, even when it's not popular, even when I don't like it, because you are God and I am not. Thank you for loving me enough to speak to me through your word. Please help me to love and to learn your word. Would you stand with me all across the room? And you don't have to pray this prayer But my hope for you would be that you place your hope and faith and your trust in God alone and you allow his word to be the authority of your life. If you're willing to pray this prayer of commitment with me, you can pray it out loud with me. If not, no shame in your game. Ready, go. From this day forward, I will accept the Bible as your trustworthy word to me, and I will make it the final authority of my life. Even when I don't understand it, even when it's not popular, even when I don't like it, you are God, I am not. Thank you for loving me enough to speak to me through your word. Help me to love and learn. God bless you, church. That's beautiful. Let's respond in worship.
0: Hey, I just want to say thank you again for tuning in to today's podcast. If you want to learn more about Celebration Church, I'd encourage you to go to our website, www.thecelebration.church, to find out more. Well, we love you guys, and let's continue to love God, love people, and change the world.